Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 133 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday, August 28th, and I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. It is the first day of classes here at UT Law. Woohoo! You've already taught and I've got class coming up in about two hours. One down, 27 to go. One down, one coming and 41 after that. So what are you teaching this year? So I've got first year constitutional law with 74 bread-eyed, bushy-tailed You have my section. You're teaching section three. You should talk to the associate dean about that. I don't know, you know, I don't know how that happened. Yeah. Um, And I've got a a seminar on military justice and jurisdiction that meets on Thursday. So today it's our, our first meeting of con law fun, where we're talking about um, everything from the Albany plan of union to the debate over the first national bank. Oh, wow. You're going to cover a little bit of territory. Including the room where it happens. Oh, are you going to play it? I, you know, no, because if I play music in class on the first day of class, I'll expect that I'm going to do stuff like interesting, cool stuff like that. And there's there's no Hamilton musical for like the other 41 classes. <laughs> I, I may have said this on the show before, but um, for many, many years, I guess I've been teaching con law for about... 17 years, maybe 18. And uh, I always, at least, I'm not sure when I picked it up, but for a large stretch of that, I've read certain passages out of Ron Chernow's biography of Hamilton. And, you know, however many years ago, I'm, I'm doing my shtick reading this passage. And a student says, hey, professor, did you know they're making a, a kind of a hip hop musical out of that book? Now, I thought he was just messing with me. Little did I know if I just know. gone out and bought tickets right then. I could have been I could have been selling those tickets and I mean the residence act is an important part of the story, right? So, That's right. All right. Anyway, um, so that'll be that'll be coming up a couple hours for me. Um, but related to that, we promised that we would spend a little bit of time today, indeed, that we will devote our frivolity section to some thoughts and tips about you know life as a one L and and how to succeed in law school. Um, I, I'll just put this out there now. There's no one right answer. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, yeah. But we'll, we'll 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 ruminate a bit at the end of the show for those who are listening who are one L's or future law students or just you know have nothing better to do. Exactly. So we'll have a, a longer maybe than and less frivolous than normal, <laughs> hopefully, frivolity segment. Are you saying our frivolity sections are frivolous? That's a, <laughs> that's a calumny. Uh, and then in terms of the substance that we're supposed to know something about, uh, we're going to talk about AIPA. AIPA. The International Emergency Economic Powers Act showed up in a... In a Trump tweet. Yeah, you know, in, in, at first, I was starting to say it was sort of an unexpected context, but I think, in fact, it was, it was very... expected it. Very expected and, and actually very serious and worth digging into. That'll but, be, but, I, but I do appreciate all the people on Twitter who were saying who who were, who were saying that you have to say Aipa the way that we say it. Oh, that was great. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, we don't lack for Aipa attention on this show. Uh, and then we will touch base with uh, a potential recurring uh, guest on the show. Uh, that Ninth Circuit litigation you, you went into the details on recently. So we talked last week about the the newest asylum ban case where the Ninth Circuit and, and my sort of. Um, shrug emoji about the Ninth Circuit's decision that partially stayed and partially didn't stay a district court nationwide injunction. And we wondered whether, given that the Ninth Circuit had narrowed the stay, the SG would take it up to the Supreme Court. Well, wonder no more, my friends. They have. So we'll restate that one and recontextualize it so it's easy to keep up with what's happening there. We also have developments at the military commission. Imagine that. I mean, I, I should say we have been, this is probably our fault, and I should say especially my fault, like things actually have been happening at the military commissions over the summer. We've just, I mean, it's so hard to stay on top of the day-to-day. Um, but there's something that happened yesterday in the one case we never talk about, the Hadi al-Iraqi case, that I just have to sort of talk about a little bit because it's, um, how do I say, wrong. (laughs) 
All right. So that'll um, be our, our three-course meal. And we will not be talking about the constitutional crisis in the United Kingdom this morning. Uh, what is the, well? Just real quick, I have not. I've been in the classroom this morning teaching day oh, one of cyber. I had cybersecurity law and policy this morning. That's Very, drama too. Yeah, what, that was drama. What happened in the UK? So did they do no confidence? Okay, I'm I'm about to totally mess up British <laughs> parliamentary politics. Oh, this will be good. Uh, our our friends across the water, our cousins, buckle up. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Here comes um, Steve. So here's the best that I understand. Um, Boris, the, the right honorable Boris Johnson, who somehow is the prime minister of the United Kingdom right now, um, has announced um, that they are scheduling the queen, uh, uh, a queen's speech for October 14th. I saw that movie. Um, Wait, no. That's King's the king's speech. speech yeah. um, and the, the sort of the reason why that is an important move procedurally, insofar as I understand parliamentary procedure, is because it means that parliament will be prorogued for much, I don't even know if I said that word correctly, um, for much of the time between now and October 14th to prepare. Um, basically, the, the Queen's speech is the beginning of the next session. So they're basically going to take like an intercession recess, Bobby. Wow. All of which is apparently a thinly veiled ploy by Prime Minister Johnson to limit the number of days Parliament will be in session to debate um, Brexit bills. And basically to make it harder and harder for Parliament to do, to pass legislation that would interfere with, you know, Boris Johnson's Brexit plan, such as it is. So the way I understand, um, I was just looking at this. And I apologize for everything I just got wrong. No, no, that sounds right. It sounds like basically for much of uh, September, basically Parliament's going to be out. Well, so But then there will be a two-week window following the the Queen's speech. speech. Right, before October 31st. But so one of the stories I read this morning suggested that Parliament might meet somewhere else. (laughs) Oh, I've seen that movie. Now, that movie I've definitely seen. Um, But anyway, all this is to say, uh, apparently there's, there's drama across the way as opposed to just the continuing, you know, Whatever's happening over wow. here. Well, it's a really big deal, and I guess it, it the the takeaway is that there's now two windows: the current window, and then the uh, post Queen speech. Yeah, and then a two week finale window for formal parliamentary action. And in the meantime, you've got this dance going on between Labor and then and then these others who have sort of you know the the, the former Tories who have mm-hmm. kind of all been negotiating a, a common cause that's being held up because. Corbyn's preference is, well, the way to do this is to make me the PM just just for a brief moment, just for one purpose. And they don't want to cross that line. And there's a little bit of a game of chicken going on with those forces. If they could get their ducks in a row, ha. they could act. Yeah. yeah. Good luck well, with that. We'll see. All uh, right. Well, just one more, one more thing, just one more headline before we jump to the actual things we want to talk about. Because um, I can't resist. So I saw the story yesterday in the Washington Post that the attorney general is holding his holiday party at the Trump Hotel. Um, and is paying at least $30,000 to the Trump Hotel to hold his holiday party at the Trump uh, Hotel. Uh, is it a personal holiday party or like the department's own I, I don't, holiday party? I think, it's, I think it's professional because he signed it like in, like it says like Bill Barr Attorney General as opposed to like Bill Barr. So person. it's like the DOJ holiday party? I don't know if it's the DOJ. There's a you know, they got a party. hall. They got a big hall. You can have a party in there, and you don't have to spend taxpayer dollars. But so here was uh, my so, so, so my line, which I really thought would do better, but apparently it was just a, it wasn't as funny as I thought it was. Is the public integrity section will be having its party elsewhere? Oh, that that's pretty good. Come on now, yeah, that's pretty good. Is it just yeah. that, like public integrity section Pub- jokes are so yeah. out of vogue because it's like why do we even have a public integrity I, section it's anymore? It's not that. It's just too too painful. Um, all right. Well, all right. interesting, Bobby. I hereby order you to start talking about Aipa. I 
Hereby order American companies to all start listening to this podcast because you're going to need to know a little bit about stuff we talk about a lot, which is the interplay of the National Emergencies Act and the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. Let's start at high altitude. What is this all about? This is all about the fact that in the, the past several decades, we've had a framework on the books that was actually originally designed very much as a as a curtailment, Steve? Curtailment of even, meant to be. even broader executive it was discretion. Meant to be, right, that IEPA, IEPA, which was enacted in 1977, is alongside the War Powers Resolution of 1973, the National Emergencies Act of 1976. These are all statutes that were at least intended yeah. to regularize and in the process procedurally curtail right. executive right. power. But, but what they didn't do was the fundamental thing that is giving rise to the circumstance we keep seeing with Donald Trump's ability to use the claims of national emergency to achieve certain, in in some cases, like the border, money movement effects. And in this case, uh, sanction powers that are ultimately the prerogative of Congress under the Foreign Commerce Authority, but have long been delegated to the executive branch to implement in particular cases. And, and why? what's the good government story here? The good government story is that in the modern world, in 20th century onward, Things happen fast, and you can't count on Congress, you know, assembling and passing bespoke litigation. Uh, legis- sorry, litigation. legislation. Legislation. Although on- bespoke litigation is also on the rise. Indeed. Uh, so Everything's the bas- up to date in Kansas the City. The basic idea is sort of a governmental efficiency type idea where, to take a, a very famous early example of this, um, the, the ability given, um, I think it was either on the books or was given to the Roosevelt administration during its time, uh, Franklin, not Teddy, uh, to <laughs> upon determination that certain conditions and very broad conditions about this will be good for restoring peace and preventing further this or that, um, the president could decide that it is time to activate a pre-delegated in effect, embargo authority on arms sales by U.S. companies to certain countries in the in in South America. They were involved in what was known as the Chaco War, and in Roosevelt at one point did exercise that delegated authority, imposed an arms embargo. Um, that actually is the underlying fact pattern from the famous case of Curtis Wright Export Corporation, which contains all this like extremely the broad organ. the sole organ doctrine gets carried forward from John Marshall's. Uh, House of Representatives statement to the pages of the U.S. reports. That's why it's famous. But the underlying idea that I'm trying to highlight here is it's long been the case that Congress, rather than sit around deciding when it wants to enact this particular embargo or that particular embargo, which it still sometimes does, also has a long history of pre-delegating certain foreign commerce embargo type and sanction type authorities and putting that in the hands of the executive branch to be exercised upon certain very broad uh, conditions being met. And the Curtis Wright case upheld the, the, the looseness with which Congress can do the delegation. So the, the best example of this by far is the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. Belo- beloved IEPA. And what it requires is that, A, there be a national emergency properly declared through the formalities of the National Emergencies Act. Um, and we've talked endlessly in the border context about that. And, and how a majority of the national emergencies that have been declared 
under the NEA have been IEPA emergencies, have been yeah. with an eye toward IEPA's authorities. Right. IEPA is not the only thing, as the border wall illustrates, that is statutorily hooked to there being a proper national emergency declaration. But it's the thing that by far the most often is the reason why a president issues a national emergency. Typically, the pattern is, all right, uh, to take an example, there's a there's unrest in the Middle East, there's, there's Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and this is hereby declared a national emergency. And on that basis, the following uh, sanctions regime is created. Usually the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Asset Control will then be more or less delegated this, this uh, process of picking out the particular individuals and institutions outside the United States with whom American entities no longer can trade. And if you violate one of these IEPA sanction orders, it's automatically a felony offense under, I think, 50 U.S. Code 1705, I think is the right one. Um, and we have to talk about the U.S. Code later. Yeah, oh, yeah. Wrong. <laughs> you, got, you got some pushback on the old U.S. Code. I'm impressed by the nerdistry of our listeners. Yeah, I was I was kind of proud. I was like, felt like a proud parent. Well, we'll, we'll come back to that. Okay, so, so long and short of it is, yes, Congress can delegate its economic sanction powers in the foreign commerce context in ways that involve uh, pre-delegated, pre-attached to criminal liability sanctions regimes. It, this sort of thing's done all the time. Um, and a number of people, I think, online have been saying like, well, you know, this, this can't be a national emergency uh, because this or that, it's, you know, Trump kind of brought the situation about. This comes back to the same issue we talked about endlessly with the border wall. Um, it's one thing to say that you or I don't feel there's actually an exigent enough circumstances. That's not really the question. The question is, would any court actually uh, second guess a presidential determination, bearing in mind that uh, you, you can argue that Trump brought about these circumstances, but whether that's relevant, the statute certainly doesn't say there's any kind of uh, latches doctrine or doctrine of unclean hands where you lose the ability to invoke the statute if you're the you're the cause of the emergency. In fact, it's I think it's pretty obvious that, that it doesn't include that sort of uh, analysis. And I, I'm extremely doubtful that a court would ever intervene on that basis. So it's also pretty clear, I think, that economic exigency in the international sphere, as the very title of IEPA suggests, um, probably isn't beyond scope for what one can categorize as a relevant emergency. In short, I think he's got this power. And this is simply one of those many areas we've seen over the past two and a half years where there's an arrangement, a delegation, uh, a statutory framework that empowers the executive branch to do certain things that as long as you've got someone operating within the norms, the Overton window of kind of traditional notions of, of fair play within those powers, you don't worry that much about, there are critics, but you don't worry too much about how it might be used. But you put a Donald Trump in there and suddenly the full breadth of what you could do if you're shameless enough to do it is very apparent. Now, I think the border wall is a good illustration of that actually being the case. I actually don't think... Now, let me let me be clear. I'm a free trade person, especially on, on some of these issues. And I think that there's definitely something to be said for pushing back against Chinese manipulation of currency and otherwise, and especially the asymmetry of their access to our markets versus ours to theirs. Yeah. So I'm, I'm saying this from a, a position of, of unhappiness about how Trump has handled 
his pushback against the Chinese and being very upset about his claims that you know China's paying for it when in fact American consumers are paying for right. all this. But I think this is actually a tool that's properly in his toolkit. I just wish it was somebody else who was in in this driver's seat with it. Well, and also, I mean, you know, to, that 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 a tool is properly in your toolkit doesn't mean that you're using it correctly, right? I mean, and, and I don't mean that as a legal matter. I mean, like the sort of the hemming and hawing, the yes, I am, no, I'm not, the back and forth. I mean, the politics of this have been terrible. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, but but no, but we're not. I mean, this is not the national security politics podcast, right? Like I, you know, I'm I'm with you here. I think Aipa. I've long actually thought Aipa. You know, I I said before. I think there's a list of statutes, right? That you know are remarkable in as you say the 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 authority they pre delegate to the president. That all of a sudden people are like, whoa. Maybe this wasn't such a good yeah. idea. There was an NPR bit that when it when he first did the tweet saying, I hereby order. And let's just comment for those who didn't follow us closely. His <laughs> tweet didn't actually originally say anything gesturing towards IEPA. He just he just said, I hereby order American companies basically to cut your supply chains to China. In a tweet. Yeah, no, it was, it was ridiculous. So but, can we put to bed the notion that he doesn't do official business through the tweet? Right. Well, well, you know, but what, did it count? It didn't really count, right? Because he didn't go through the formalities. We if don't have a relevant national emergency declaration and therefore a not a relevant but, but invocation. If, of if he said, I hereby order in a tweet to a service, I hereby well, order different. Lieutenant Colonel Joe Smith, right? Isn't that, isn't that just the difference, though? The companies are not in the situation of a service member. Funny he's how not commander-in-chief of, what was it they said in uh, Jackson, Youngstown? right? He's commander-in-chief of the army, not the country. Of the military, not the country. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And then, this is a great example of that point. But he did follow it up a day later, no doubt having someone, someone had told him, like, listen, well, there is a way to do this. <laughs> Uh, by the way, I tweeted right away yeah, I, you did. I, saying something about, like, look, you know, there is a way this can be done. Absolutely could be done under IEPA, and it would stick. And, and, then, many Trump, people, and then Trump himself said. Well, and then Trump said, right. I'm not, using the, he left out the I. It was just IEPA. Yeah. It was just IEPA. The Emergency Economic Powers Act. Yeah. No, I like it. IEPA. IEPA. So, uh, step to the level of what would be a good reform. If in, in some, some magical world in the future where we're going through a list of things and realizing, hey, we should tighten safeguards in right. the interest of cabining government power, what would be – you can't have a legislative veto nope. as long as Chada is the rule of the land. Just you, right, explain I, that real quick. INS versus Chada, 1983 Supreme Court decision um, where the Supreme Court invalidated legislative vetoes. That is to say statutes that delegate the president authority but allow Congress to override it through either a concurrent resolution, which is a majority vote of both houses, or even a one-house resolution. Right. So, so any, anything that would be congressional action that doesn't require presentment in the support of the president. Right. So you could just do it by your own – would not, ha- cannot, cannot repeal. You can't repeal a statute with a right. non-statute. Right. And so a lot of people critique that, but it is what it is. Yep. It, I see no sign that's going to change. Nope. So could you instead amend IEPA such that, because I think you still need these powers for, for non-abusive invocations. But what about the reforms we talked about for the National Emergencies Act, like sunsetting, you know, re- right. requiring, requiring con- expiring any invocation of authority under IEPA after 30 days absent congressional authorization? Right. So you can either do it, you can make it an IEPA-specific reform, or you can make it all statutes, including uh, transfers of yeah. DOD funds, right. see the border wall, right. and, and attach the sunset to the national emergency. The idea is uh, if Congress is not in session, there will be uh, call them back automatically maybe. And then within a certain number of days, if they don't pass a statute, presumably the president would yeah. sign it into law. Although Congress isn't out of session anymore, right? I mean, like like the, the reality is that the, the intercession recess is now like- That's just vacation time? No, it's infinitesimally short, right? Congress stays in session right up until the next session begins. Yeah, I guess you don't have to worry about about too much. Okay, I mean, so they go, on, that they, they go on like lower lowercase r recess, 
right. but they're never actually out of session. So the only thing that matters here is how many days you want to give Congress to debate and extend it. And, and what the money moving stuff, as we noted at the time we discussed this, yeah. can be accomplished in a well-functioning executive branch, which this one isn't. <laughs> but a well-functioning executive branch could you know, declare the national emergency, activate the border fund transfer mechanisms, and put that into motion right there that very day. Yeah. And by the time the emergency expires, the money's moved. It doesn't snap back and unmove. That's right. Um, IEPA sanctions, however, you could put a, an outer deadline on them, and that would really change their effect. Or you could narrow the context in which you could. I mean, like there, there are reforms are out there. I mean, I think you know, I think this goes into the the hopper of things we've learned from the Trump administration. <laughs> There's a long list. Yes. Yeah. I would it's like also to a, it's an interesting pedagogical challenge. Like, how much do you actually yeah. teach the law of Trump in classes that are not just about Trump? Can I just be rarely political uh, for the show, at least? Please, uh, for a second, just say that it would be so great for either a Republican or Democrat new president in an inaugural address to set forth a sort of a, a lessons we've learned. Here's a here's a legislative package I'd like passed within the first hundred days. That limits my all, power. That's that's all about. Tightening the place, finding the places where it turned out we wanted a certain rule, but it was only norms rather than statute right. that, that required that. Right. And so, sort of restoring the separation of powers, and that would certainly be part of it. So, uh, I, I mean, that, think, there's a lot that goes under that heading. So, I can't can't say for sure but, whether no, I know. But, but I mean, we, we could we can nitpick about what should and shouldn't be part of that package, right? But we no. both agree there ought to be a package. I think um, some kind of package is clearly indicated. So, I, I I I was asked this question by a reporter a little while ago, and I had to think about it for a minute, like. Can you think of any president who has ever like affirmatively participated in a project to reduce the power of the presidency? And the only example I could come up with was Jimmy Carter. I was um, going to say Carter is, but that's like- but 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 he's the outlier, right? I mean, can you think of any? I mean, so Carter, and what I mean by Carter is Carter was, if not enthusiastically part of, at least perfectly willing to endorse all of these post-Nixon, post-Watergate, you know, the IEPA, um, right? Um, the Ethics and Government Act of 1978. I mean, like, like FISA. Uh, FISA, right? Like Carter signed a lot of statutes into law that, among other things, you know, pared back, at least putatively, the power of the presidency. Can you think of anybody, any other president? I, I'm sure that our historians of the 19th century would say that the, that there's some less familiar ones. John Tyler. Who, who were perfectly happy in the era of the strong Congress to uh, to support that, but I don't I don't have enough knowledge to... By the way, John examples. Tyler's the answer to an awesomely messed up trivia question. What's that? Well, he's actually the answer to a lot of... Off, um, um, the only U.S. president who was buried not... who Who at the time of his burial was not on U.S. soil. Hmm. And explain. He was buried in Virginia in the middle of the Civil War. Oh, fascinating. I, the, there's a, I, the uh, I think, I think that, that President Lincoln would have said, that is still I understand, U.S. But, soil. But Tyler didn't. <laughs> well, presidents can have all kinds of crazy ideas. Yeah, fair enough. All right. So anything else to say about IEPA? Now, we don't, to be clear, like the president said he could do this. A lot of this is posturing. Yep. To be sure. Um, but it is a natural continuation of the tariffs insofar as you reach a point where there aren't really any salient new sectors to extend the tariffs to. And you reach a point where you might not be willing to uh, increase the, the rate of the tariffs beyond a certain point because of the effects that has domestically, which you know, no matter what the president says, in fact, Americans are paying this amount. Um, That's the, all the, dumb. The, the reason the Chinese are hurt by it is not because they're paying directly for it. It's that they then can't sell as much because right. Americans having to pay this extra tax, and the tax is what it is, uh, may start curtailing and do start curtailing their, their buying habits. Now, um, 
it makes a lot of sense, I would argue, and I'd like to see if I if I trusted the judgment of the person playing this game of chess, I would like to it's see not them. Chess. Well, I'm saying I, if it was in the hands of the right person, it could be done with a it little more strategy. <laughs> it could be chess. It's not going to be go, unfortunately, because that's what we're getting probably beat at in mm-hmm. this. But in any event, um, the point is having the tariff tool to do what in other contexts we call smart sanctions, um, going after particularly sensitive and isolated uh, individuals in ways that harm those individuals could in some ways, if, if definitely enough applied, be a better approach than broad sweeping blunderbuss tariffs. So I actually don't think it's necessarily a bad idea in principle. I just don't trust the judgment of how it's going to be deployed here if it gets deployed. Um, but we should turn to other topics. We've mm-hmm. got other exciting things. So you, you waxed eloquent about this Ninth Circuit asylum uh, <sighs> rule. We have a new week. development. Can you first remind us exactly what was at stake yes. at stake in that prior uh so as part of the trump administration's very aggressive campaign to curtail access to asylum um by arriving immigrants um the department of homeland security had promulgated a rule um, that basically says um, if you are an arriving immigrant you are ineligible to apply for asylum if you did not apply for asylum in each of the third countries through which you transited on your way to the United States. All right, so if you're coming like, through if Mexico, you're Guatemalan, yeah, right, right. And, and you didn't apply for asylum in each country, including Mexico. So did it start with Guatemala, like apply before you leave? Um, no, yeah, third country. It's just so transit. Not, not, okay. not home right. country. So just Mexico for a Guatemala. Because uh, you, yeah, yeah. you, right, you don't need asylum in your home country. No, no. Oh, you, you have to apply. I thought it was you had to reach out to American authorities to apply for asylum in the United States. But you also, from have, within you also the, have to seek asylum from the, the transiting countries. Oh, interesting. So unless you're unless you're able to enter directly from the country you're trying to flee. A.K.A. Mexico. Right. You uh, Interesting. Okay. Of course, um, of course, that doesn't mean everyone therefore ends up Mexico because Mexico doesn't exactly take everybody. Well, either. this is—I mean, this is. I, hello, thank yeah. you. Okay, so um, whatever the merits of this as a policy, and I think it has very little merit as a policy, but that's another conversation. Um, there's a pretty good argument that it's inconsistent with the asylum statute, um, which specifically says you know you can apply for asylum almost no matter what, the exception being if there is a safe third country agreement between the United States and the country from which you are seeking asylum, right? We're still in the process of trying to figure out whether we're going to have a safe third country in Mexico. Um, so there's a pretty good legal argument that this is ultra-virus. So expressio unius, that's exclusio alteris. The right. expression of the one type Implies of exception. the exclusion of the other. Yeah, there's a, that's a preview for UNLs. Oh, looking for tips of the day. One of the many canons of statutory interpretation you, you will encounter in law school. Um, all right. We talked in our last episode about how the district court had issued a nation, the district court in the Northern District of California issued a nationwide injunction against this policy. Um, the Trump administration had went to, had gone to the Ninth Circuit for a stay. We talked about how the Ninth, a divided panel in the Ninth Circuit agreed to stay the injunction insofar as it went beyond the Ninth Circuit, um, right, on the ground that, you know, nationwide injunctions are problematic and weren't justified in this case. Um, over a dissent by Judge Tashima, who would have denied the state in its entirety. Um, and as I said last week, like, you know, this seems weird to me. Like, if you're pro- you're, the problem isn't that it's a nationwide injunction. The problem is that it's an injunction as applied to, you know, parties who aren't the plaintiff. Um, right? Like, that in some sense, the, the notion that the issue is, ter- is territory as opposed to party is messing up this whole conversation. Um, so, but I said, but maybe DOJ will not actually seek, you know, further relief from the Supreme Court because they got much of what they wanted. They got the injunction reduced to the Ninth Circuit. 
Um, well, lo and behold, on Friday, the Justice Department filed another application for a stay in the Supreme Court. You know, I guess I'm not too surprised given California and Arizona's centrality to, to the flows True. that the administration is concerned about. So insofar as the injunction still applied there, I'm not surprised that they went, you know, for a stay. No, but but here's the thing. So I, I, I'm not surprised either, but I think it's revealing. And it's revealing of two different points that I think we ought to, you know, say overtly. The first is, for all of the hysteria about nationwide injunctions, right, this is not actually, the government's real beef here is not with nationwide injunctions, it's with injunctions, right? It's it's with losing these, it's with all these cases that they're losing in district court on the injunction, even within the territorial jurisdiction of that district court. Are, are you saying, if you're saying that the beef of the government is with the underlying merits that, that they were enjoined, clearly. Yes. Of course. No, uh, you're not saying just with injunctive relief, period. Well, no. I mean, I, so no. Like there, in the abstract. Th- there is no like general assault on the power of district courts to enjoin <laughs> the government. under assault. Well, listen, I mean, another Paging time. Sam Bray. Excuse me. Another time we will have a conversation about the Supreme Court's quietly, really, really important and horrifying 2015 decision in Armstrong versus Exceptional Child Center, where the court actually dramatically weakened the scope of federal court's power to issue injunctions. Ooh, equity is under assault. It is. And, and I actually think Sam, Sam, Sam and I actually, Sam, Sam and I radically disagree about whether many of these developments are good or bad, but we actually are in lockstep on what these developments, you know, on, on the meaning of these developments, yeah, yeah. Um, which I always take as a good sign. Yeah. Um, we still, we want to write a paper together about this one day. I would love to see that. Oh, you guys could do a dialogue paper. You know, the most famous dialogue paper was Henry Hart talking to himself. <laughs> Hey, you know, it's, some people say that uh, when Plato wrote about, you know, the Socratic dialogues, a lot of that was just Socrates. That's true. You know, I guess Plato's more famous than Henry Hart. I meant the most famous law review article. <laughs> All right. Anyway, um, so the here's my thing though. Like the the in, you know, I've written a, a lot about this uptick in this, the SG asking the Supreme Court for, right. for extraordinary relief, right. and the most common response I hear from people is it's just a reaction to all these nationwide injunctions, and what I think this further underscores is that that's not true, right? That that it is not this sort of wackadoodle notion that district courts in California are stopping policies in Florida, right? That that there's something much more basic going on here, which is that the administration just believes that district courts across the country are getting the merits wrong. Um, and, you know, that's a separate conversation, but it's, you know, it suggests that this is less about district courts being radical in the scope of their relief than it is about district courts, you know, either getting the merits wrong or not getting the merits wrong because they're being provoked by all these novel, you know, lawful or not, but novel policy changes. Okay. So it's really about the merits at the end of the day. That's what's yeah. driving it. Yeah. It's it, not right. It's not it's about- the merits combined with the sense that the, on the executive branch's part, that the best chance for victory is with the lineup they think they've got on most of these issues at the Supreme Court level and just wanting to get right to it. Especially as compared to, I mean, if we think about the, you know, much of this litigation happens along the border, right? So in the Fifth Circuit, they're probably less worried about that because it's a more sympathetic appeals bench. But in the Tenth Circuit for New Mexico cases and the Ninth Circuit, you know, I think they're struggling. Now, the Ninth Circuit, we've talked about that before, it's much maligned for being, you know, crazy liberal. It's not anymore. It's actually now, I think, just about the most ideologically diverse appeals court in the country. But yeah, it's it's funny. People's impressions, you pick up at some point in law school, whatever the then status quo is, and people from a certain generation are like, well, the Fourth Circuit is, you know, a certain way, and Ninth Circuit's this opposite way. And yeah, lo and behold, personnel and appointments change. Yep. That, that It's not static. Nope. Um, anyway, so all this is to say, um, 
stay application 21 is now pending. Um, and one of these days, the Harvard editors are going to yell at me to actually finish this paper. Oh, get after it. You have a book chapter, too. Don't forget that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, I also but- have cases. Yeah. <laughs> Milcoms. Right. Milcoms, really quickly, because we got to get to frivolity. Um, so when we have talked before about actual substantive issues before the military commissions, as opposed to like the 10-layer dip of Nashiri and ethical kerfuffles, I think we've agreed, and I, I say this to make sure that I'm not about to, to speak out of school, I'm that one of the biggest structural questions facing the military commissions is the validity of trying offenses that are not well-established international war crimes. Yeah, in, in general, it is one of the biggest problematic question marks overhanging MILCOMs as opposed to federal criminal prosecution in ordinary federal district court is the uncertainty of the av- ultimate availability upon full and final review, eventually all the way to the court, of the charges themselves yep. on key charges. Right. And, and so in two of the three, well, so, right. So so what that means, in pra- and, and part of why this matters is because these aren't outlier charges. Like a majority of the work the military commissions have done to date, you know, complicated and, and unsuccessful as, as they may have been, um, have been on non-international war crimes. You and I both agree, um, I know I can say this one because we talked about it so many times, that the government has the constitutional authority to try enemy belligerents for international war crimes in a military commission. No doubt. That's, I mean, that's literally that's the what point. the Supreme Court— That's what it's for. Well, and it's what the Supreme Court held in Kieran, right, mm-hmm. in the Nazi saboteur case during World War II. It's all the ways in which what's happening at Guantanamo goes beyond Kieran, that there's this uncertainty where you and I have both been critical of the refusal of the D.C. Circuit and the Supreme Court to actually clarify these matters ex right. ante. And we, and we may differ on exactly which ones are most problematic or— or indeed whether they really are problematic, but the uncertainty, the, the very fact that it's not clear which charges actually are legit charges right. for your criminal process is a huge problem, and it's not a problem that attends ordinary federal criminal prosecution. Yep. Okay. So um, what got me going is, yes, so there's we've talked a lot about two of the three pending military commission cases right now, right? Al Nashiri, who's the alleged mastermind of the October 2000 bombing of the USS Cole, the 9-11 case, which is the five defendants who are being tried for, you know, being behind the, the 9-11 plot itself. We haven't really talked that much about the third case, uh, which is Hadi or Al-Iraqi, depending upon which name you choose you prefer. Um, and this is a, I think, less high-profile case, you know, by, by design. Sure. Um, it's not as well-known a defendant. It's not as serious a charge. It's not as visible an event. Um, and Iraqi is, uh, Al-Iraqi is being charged for just inchoate conspiracy. Um, and importantly for our purposes, um, for a conspiracy, parts of which actually happened after the Military Commissions Act was enacted in October 2006. So there's no ex post facto, or at least there's no pure ex post facto. Right. So at least part of the charges can survive even a strict approach to ex post facto. Correct. So the, so so this case raises right the question that has not been settled. Now the last time the D.C. Circuit considered this question in the Al Balul case, the en banc court fractured um, with no majority opinion. Right. That you know uh, then Judge Brett Kavanaugh wrote a four judge concurrence that would have upheld conspiracies in international war crime. Um, but the two judges who formed them, who helped to form the majority, didn't go that far. So we had no conclusive resolution, and the Supreme Court denied cert. Um, so yesterday, in the military commission in Al Iraqi, one of the prosecutors, and by the way, I'm getting this from Carol Rosenberg. So I'm, I'm just, I'm, I assume Carol is reporting this correctly. But assuming Carol's reporting this correctly, one of the prosecutors argued that conspiracy as a war crime is settled 
because after the D.C. Circuit upheld it in Belul, the Supreme Court declined to review it. Yeah, that's not how cert denied is properly all, The district also didn't uphold it. Like, well, right, no, but if, if you... Everything, every yeah. single word in that sentence is incorrect. So I agree with that, that it is, in fact, up for grabs as a matter... It's, the Supreme Court denied cert doesn't actually, as a formal matter, mean Have anything. any presidential value. In, in just a little, little practice note for anyone else here or listening, the Texas Supreme Court has a whole way of indicating in with, with specific words that are used to indicate, okay, this is being denied because we totally agree, you know, this is denied for a certain reason and there is presidential, va- presidential value to the denial. But that's not how cert denied works. And, and as you court. say, yeah, the charge survived D.C. Circuit review. In Belul, specifically. Right. But not but with the that, theory. But without a holding right. on the point that could then be declared to be settled certain Right, because law. the reason why the charge survives is because two of the six judges who formed the majority, right, relied on case re- reasons specific and unique to Al-Balul's case right. to get there. Right, so it's not a bad ruling for the current no. case, but it's not dispositive. Right. right. It is literally an open question. Yeah. And so for the government to be arguing with a straight face that it's settled, um, it's just like, guys, come on, do better. Yeah. You know, you know what's not in dispute? What? Charging conspiracy in federal district court in a you know what else is not in or or charging conspiracy as a theory of liability, conspiracy to commit a completed war crime. I mean, there are so many, there are so many different ways you could avoid this problem that it's well. Remind to- me about Hadi al Iraqi though. Would, do we do we have a completed act in that case? I don't, so I don't, so I mean, I think we should clarify this for listeners. The point of disagreement about whether something is is in the bucket of international war crimes around conspiracy, at least for a lot of observers, the dividing line is between uh, an, a conspiratorial agreement that then culminates in the completed uh, agreed-upon act. Where, where, where conspiracy is a theory of liability, but the completed act is right. itself the underlying substantive offense. Not unlike saying, like, well, you aided and abetted the offense, you're exactly. an accessory actor after, after the fact, that right. sort of thing. It's secondary liability or... Or, or so forth, but conspiracy as an inchoate offense where the agreement never culminates in the criminal and act. And so the crime is just but, the agreement. But the crime is the agreement alone is is more controversial. It's it's a commonplace part of American federal criminal law, but not international criminal law. And that's the and that's the fight, right? So that's the fight. So the so for example, the the ad hoc international war crimes tribunals have a jurisprudence of joint criminal enterprise um, (JCE), right, which actually looks a lot like. Some species, especially JCE type three, right, looks a lot like some species of American conspiracy theory. The problem is that JCE is not an offense in those courts, right? JCE right. is a theory of liability for the underlying right. war crimes. So you have to, so you have to have that completed act, correct? Or at least, or at least an attempt. It has at least to be an attempt. Technically done, that's right. Completed. Um, well, but, an attempt is a completed right. offense, right? For purposes of exactly okay. so. Yeah, yeah, good stuff there. So anyway, all this is to say, um, this remains the to me central structural question hovering over the military commission. And the government, you know, it's like Lewis Carroll and the snark. You can't make it not, you know, you can't settle it just by saying it, right? Like, I've said it thrice. Well, it also is another sign that there's going to be tons of further litigation about this. I mean, but, that, that but, issue right. is going to but potentially post, go a long way. But on post-conviction appeal because of Al Nashiri too. Right. Boo. Which is another way of saying, even if these cases ever get to results, you still won't really know the result. The whole thing could come totally unwound years from now. Yay. Well, yeah. keep us in business. Yeah, well, that's true. Episode, episode 333. Speaking of the business. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, um, one else. Hello. Welcome. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome to law school. Welcome to law school. We're glad you're here. We are. We are excited. Um, uh, we you hear are, you have questions. You are not imposters. 
<laughs> or or we're all imposters. Well, fair enough. It's Everybody's one or the other, it. right? I mean, either you're not imposters or we all are. Because, like, I feel like one of the hardest things to, you know, someone else walking to law school and they're like, dude, this is awesome. I'm going to rock this. Fine. Kudos to you. But I think there are a lot of 1Ls who have, have doubt. Yeah, you should um, have no doubt. Um, don't, right, right. I mean, you, you know, you worked hard to get here. You know, there, there are going to be hard days. There are going to be hard classes. There are going to be hard topics. But don't let that, you know, don't let one bad day or one bad reading or one bad exam, right, convince you of something, you know, to the contrary of, of everything you did to get here. So we thought we'd take a couple minutes just to say a few things about our general advice to one else. And we got a couple of specific queries and, and, and questions over Twitter and email, which we'll also get to. So how do you want to start? Well, what pick one of the ones that somebody submitted to us. What should we talk about? So what, so um, one of, uh, a student here at UT actually emailed us to ask, um, what does it mean to be well prepared for class, right? Because, you know, I, like many of our colleagues, and I'm, I'm sure you, right, put on my syllabus, I expect you to be prepared for class, right? <laughs> exactly. What does that mean? Yeah, okay, bare minimum, right? <laughs> bare minimum. I like how that's where you start. So there's reading the assignment and there's reading the assignment. Yes. And a lot of the advice people are subjected to through orientation and elsewhere is all about learning how to brief cases and all that. And that's good, right? I mean, you definitely need to have this construct in your mind of the cliched standard 1L classroom experience where you were told to read, say, three classes, three cases for the next class. Um, you know, Vladek versus Chesney is the first case. You read it, you need to make sure that you have the ability in a pithy way that focuses on what turn out to be the most important facts. If called upon to state the facts, you need to be able to give some kind of reasonable account that doesn't involve you talking for 20 minutes, just reciting everything the judge recited. It's getting to the heart of the matter. It's all about discernment, right? And knowing that there's certain things that are worth highlighting if you have just a moment where you're on call and you got to highlight those things. And if you're asked instead to explain what was the issue in the case, what was the judge's resolution, same general principle applies. It's discerning the heart of the matter and knowing how to both articulate that and then if asked probing further questions, how to with still making, oh, let me kind of digress from myself for a moment to say, do this all with eye contact with your professor. Do not be staring at your laptop, wondering where in your notes the answer is. When, when you get called on, well, we're going to talk up. about laptops too. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I, I think before law school, right, and outside of law school, there's this whole thing about the elevator pitch, right? Can you, can you, just, can you, can you break something down in the time it takes to ride an elevator? Um, as a New Yorker, of course, that, that usually means longer than in some parts of the country. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think it's – what I tell students sometimes is is you shouldn't be able to break down the entire reading assignment in an elevator pitch, but, like, each of the chunks, right? Like, if there's three cases, right, or if there's one case with four opinions, you know, you should be in a position where you can at least, reca- you know, reframe and describe, as you say, the, the key points – um, omitting the stupid and irrelevant stuff, right? Because there will be stupid and irrelevant stuff in there too. Right. And then also the trickier part, of course, is stuff that it's not stupid, it's not irrelevant, but it's nested within um, more overarching key right. details. So I don't know, just off the fly here, let's think about Curtis Wright. So if That's if, where you're starting? Well, just because we talked about it earlier, right? <laughs> so in Curtis Wright's an appropriately complex case that it at is. some point might be assigned in your common law class perhaps. I hope and, not. And there's, there's a million factoids, but... You know, the, the, first of all, the legal analysis doesn't really spend much time interacting with the facts in that case, okay. which some cases, that's not the case. Sometimes, well, in some classes, right? In some classes, the facts are crucial. Absolutely. Right? And in some classes, the facts are, are well nigh irrelevant. Right. And so if, if I think if I were called upon and say, like, you know, Mr. Chesney, you state the facts in Curtis Wright Export Corporation, um, I, I'd probably want to pretty quickly explain that 
Congress had delegated to the president the ability to impose an arms embargo, um, you know, in, in, when the following conditions were met, and President Roosevelt issued an order declaring the conditions had been met. The Curtis Wright Corporation, which was an arms exporter, nonetheless sold machine guns that were to be used mounted on airplanes uh, by one side or the other in the Chaco War. And they were basically busted. And the only way they weren't going to get a criminal penalty for what they'd done was if Congress had uh, acted unconstitutionally, if the whole arrangement under which they're being prosecuted was itself unconstitutional. And the question that thus presented to the court was, did Congress uh, excessively delegate without sufficient uh, subject matter description of the conditions to, to empower the executive to do that. Um, and I think that could be like drilled down on it by professors interested in the facts and whether whether there's more interesting things to say. But that said, in sort of one long sentence, all the things that really mattered, I think, in that case. So it's interesting. You're, you're thinking about this at a much more sophisticated level than I am, right? <laughs> so my response is like, okay, who is the Curtis Wright Export Corporation, right? Why are they on the other side of a lawsuit from the ah, United States? Okay. You know, you're right. I'm not thinking about this from the one L perspective right. at like, all. Like, I'm thinking this from like the upper level national. I'm going to say, like, but buddy, you know, like I, I don't know where you went to law school. Actually, do you know where you went to law okay, school? Okay, do you think that the professor? Let's let's. This is helpful because we're going to talk about it from this sort of the the pedagogical perspective. If oh, you take, can we take like a case against like how about Marbury? Well, hold on, stay with this because it's it's on the table. Okay. Um, pedagogically, do you think it's fair to say that a professor who wants that level? Of just like, hey, no, the basics. Who? Why is it United States versus some thing called Curtis Wright? Like, what's the style and caption? Yeah. Who are the parties? Do you think it's fair to say that a professor who wants that answer is going to ask the much more simple and direct question of who are the parties and or just start there? Like, who are the parties? Who's Curtis Wright and why are they in this? Maybe, mess? but 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 my point is just that like like these are like if I'm a one L and I'm thinking about how to prepare, how, what does it mean to be well prepared for class? Like, I am I am starting from the perspective of you know, what kinds of questions am I likely to get? Now, perhaps the most important thing I can say is every class is going to be different. You and I teach very differently, right? Every professor is different. And so part of this is going to be trial and error. Part of this is going to right. be you're going to have to go to class and see what the professor expects, and you're probably going to have to over-prepare it first. Absolutely, and, then, and that's okay. And that's fine, and then tailor your preparation to each professor. So I, for example, let me just take me. Um, I am not especially Socratic. When I call on students out of the blue, like cold call them, I'm usually asking very basic questions about the case because all I am looking for at that point is to make sure that they've done the reading, not that they're like, yeah. you know, processing the reading on a super sophisticated level. Critical distinction, cold calling versus the actual method of Socrates known as the Socratic method and the, ver and the version of it that sometimes is used in law school. So cold calling you, you certainly should be prepared for that. You got to understand that sometimes it's like Steve said, this is the way we ensure that you did the reading and you comprehended the reading and that the discussion can proceed to more sophisticated matters with everyone having a common foundation of what the relevant facts were, et cetera, what the procedural posture of the case is. Um, the Socratic dialogue part, this idea of extracting or attempting to extract from the student your sense of what principle is at work yeah. and then testing whether you can consistently hold that principle across varied cases and then seeing if you want to then revise that principle. And right. this process is sometimes disparaged as just tying people in knots, but actually is a process, if you're really doing it in Socratic dialogue fashion, it's designed to see how clear you can be to yourself, how honest to yourself you can be about why you believe something's right 
or wrong, and whether you'll really hold to that when pressed with hard edge cases. And when the facts change. Exactly. Right? So, so for example, in contracts, right, there is a enormous debate over when and under what circumstances parole evidence, right, external stuff, um, is relevant to interpreting the language of a contract, right? Um, you know, you might feel differently about whether you know a letter, a letter that's not part of the contract that the parties wrote to each other, right, um, is parole evidence or not, depending upon who the parties are, what kind of cases, et cetera. So, the point is, is that being well prepared for class is very class specific, and it's specific to both who the professor is, what their style is, what the subject matter is. But at a minimum, it means not just not just flipping the pages of the book until you get to the last one. It means actually processing and digesting what the big points are, whether you understand them completely, whether you agree with them, whatever. Just you know, having a sense by the end of the reading that you understand what the most important two, three, five things were in the material that was covered. All right. So this to disparage it but not really in a mean-spirited way, the regurgitation function, being prepared at a minimum means you're, you're in a position to effectively regurgitate in response to the particular professor's points of emphasis what it was you were supposed to have read. Then there's the level of sophistication we want to move to beyond that, where we want you to be able, and ideally you've pre-thought about this a bit. If, if you're asked in, in, in that parole evidence contracts case, you're asked to state what the underlying principle is and you say, well, so this court basically held that um, you know it's not legitimate in the interpretation of the contract to take account of things that aren't written within the four corners of the document. And the professor very well is, and you should be able to anticipate the professor might say like, would you, that seems okay in a just outcome here, but what if, and right. then, then comes a much more sympathetic case for looking outside the boundaries where, where where you're told maybe that the, the words do seem to read a certain way, but you're told there's this very significant thing that turns on it, and there's a sympathetic reason yep. to believe that the parties actually just didn't convey themselves very clearly. But if you only account for this letter, my God, it's so clear what they really wanted right. is X. The, the fungibility and, of principle. Yeah, so so be prepared to consider, is, is it really a cast iron rule, or would you admit of exceptions? And if so, and here's the best part, can you restate your principle in a way that explains how you can have it both ways aside from ad hocery? That's right. Because what, and it may be that the right answer is, and this is something you gotta be willing to say and defend if you think it's the right answer, maybe that's where you count on the judgment of the judge. And, well, and, and it's gonna be ad hoc, but that's not a principle. Right. That's trust in a decision maker. And that's, and that's, and I actually think that's what sets con law apart from other 1L classes. I think there's more of that in con law than perhaps in the common law classes. But um, so this this is a good segue though to, to one of my other, I think, most important pieces of advice, which is whatever your professor's style, whether it is Socratic, cold call, neither, um, I think it's very important when thinking about not just being well-prepared for class, but being well-prepared in class to think about how you're taking notes. Yeah. Um, and my, my strongest and biggest and perhaps most you know, overwhelming sort of piece of advice to one else is um, whatever you do, don't transcribe, um, right? That, that there's a tendency because we have laptops and because most of us can type relatively quickly um, to assume that the best thing we can do is write down everything, at least the professor says, and maybe even everything that our classmates are saying and go back afterwards and figure it out. Right. No. Like, don't do that. that. Don't do that because here's the problem. In context, it will make sense. Two months later, when you're studying for the exam and you're trying to figure out why this was what the conversation was about, it won't make sense. And the chances that you've mistranscribed a key point because you're not 
deeply listening, but you're just trying to, to right. act like a stenographer. It's a different, it is literally a different brain function. I mean, how many times in review have you had students come to you and say like, well, I have in my notes that you said X right. and it's not what you said. Or it's not, or ever, it is, but I was wrong. Um, okay, well that's a, that's a whole separate. No, no, but, but, no, but we, the, we do but make it, mistakes. But it, is, but it is literally a different brain function transcribing what someone is saying and absorbing and processing what they're saying in a way that you can actually respond to it. And so, you know, I, I beseech my students. You know, I I don't care if you use a laptop or not. I am I am I am ambivalent about laptops in the classroom. What I am not ambivalent about is using laptops to take a transcript. Because um, yeah. I think the most important thing you can do with a lecture is actually let your mind process what the professor is getting at, what the students are saying in response, whether, you know, what what we're moving toward in our discussion, um, as opposed to every word that's coming out of each person's mouth. How about this for a tip? And it's I think this is very contestable, but it's an idea I'll throw out there. The conventional advice is you get a study group. You show up at law school, you figure out who you might be friends with that you'd want to enjoy spending time prepping for class. And study groups meet in this sort of an ex-ante mode get together to talk about the readings, group studying. First of all, that's usually a deeply inefficient way to study for ex-ante preparation. Uh, secondly, isn't it more useful to have your study group be meeting after the class so you can collectively agree on what the key points were and you could all then um, go back in your notes and make sure your notes capture that? So I was not a study group person in law school. Um, but yes, I think that's right. Like the better to meet afterwards than before, or at least both, right? Yeah. That, so prep solo and then consolidate collectively after class. And then see like, you know, did you all miss something or not? And this, so this leads to my third point, which is, and if you all miss something, that's what office hours are for, right? Yeah. There's, there is way, way, way too much uh, allergicness allergies yeah. to office hours. Yes. And here, yes, it is true that professors will vary into how welcoming their office hours really are. But at least speaking for us, I mean, there's nothing I would like more than for as many students as possible to come in and say, here's what I thought was important in today's class. Did I get that right? Did I, is that omitting something? Because right. there's a good chance there is some nuance you missed. There's a good chance there's something that you you know, maybe it's my fault because I didn't communicate it right. Maybe it's your fault because you were not listening in, in 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 the right way. But take that chance and do it then. And I would just say, and, and I, I mean, I, I think two L's and three L's don't do this enough. But one L's, I think, especially, you know, keep in mind that most law schools, and this is certainly true of ours, um, don't just randomly assign professors to the first year. Right, that that the professors who are teaching in the first year are professors who actually enjoy teaching one else, uh, and part of that is accessibility. Part of that is right. being there for you when you're struggling with the material outside of class. So, you know, for example, this semester I've got four and a half hours of office hours each week. Um, you know, that's I think that's above the median. That's a lot. But you know, it's a large class. But you got class. brand new fall one else, right. and there's going to be a million questions. So you know, don't be shy about going to your professor's office hours. Really, I mean, if, you know, if you really are shy, bring a friend. Yeah. Um, but but go. I think it's good to go. And uh, if you can get in a situation where there's four or five of you in there and everybody's yeah. just asking questions, other people will ask questions you should have but you didn't think to. Yep. And you'll benefit from hearing the response. And you might realize that you're not alone. Um, and then so the last and then my big four pieces of advice, because I, I think that that was three, this is four. Um, there is a tendency among law students, and this is true not just in the first semester of the first year, to do things because, quote, they say we should, unquote. Right? Like, you know, why are you doing law review? Because they say I should, right? Why are you taking this class? Because they say I should. So my basic reaction to that is if you can't tell me who they are, then that's not good. Um, <laughs> right? That you should have your own reasons 
um, for do for for all. There are lots of things we don't let you have franchise over in law school. We tell you what classes you have to take as of you know most of your first year. Um, some schools all of your first year and parts of your second, right? Um, but when we give you franchise, the franchise is meant to be used by you, not by the mob. And go. so, you know, I, I have no problem with people who come in and say, I know exactly where I want to be in five years. I got to be on law review. I got a clerk. I, great. As long as you have your reasons for doing that and not just because that's what everybody else says I should be doing. And if you're not sure what you want to be doing, again, see Supra office hours. There you go. I think that's a good note to end on. All right. So anyway, um, good luck. Godspeed. It will be fine. You will do well. It will not be the hard that you think it is. And the hard parts are hard for everybody. I, I don't know about you. I had a moment when I was a 1L where I called my uncle, who's a law professor, and said, this is miserable. I hate it. I can't take it anymore. <laughs> it was after an especially frustrating contracts class. I, I said my sort of low morale moment was very early on when I was still acclimating to the pace of the combination of the volume of the reading and the depth of processing you needed to engage in yeah. to be able to regurgitate it. And that, you know, some people come in, they're already moving fast on that dimension. Some people have a long learning curve to adjust to it. Every We were told, you know, hey, five months from now, you're all going to be pretty much at the same spot. And it, it proved to be totally true. But early on, I right. was like, oh, God. You get there at different speeds. It, well, and it's what you said. You think everyone else is, is killing it. Uh, they're not all killing it. They're not. It's it's just like it's like people's social media curation of their appearance on Instagram. It's like, wow, they're having nothing but fun and happiness all the time. All their pictures are smiling. Yeah, nobody's like that all the time. It's you know, life's hard for everybody. Right, we don't post the non-smiling pictures. Right, exactly. So uh, law school's got a little bit of that. So you will be fine. Yeah, and and, uh, and, and don't and don't think that momentary downturns are emblematic of anything broader than just that's how life is, right? And that's not a broader reflection on anything. And if you get really stuck and you have questions you don't know who to ask. And you, you always, listen to this podcast. You can always ask us. Ask us. The virtual office hours are there. Indeed. All right. Anyway, um, hopefully this is going to become our new-ish regular time for the podcast, Wednesday mornings this semester. We'll see how that works since we're both teaching on Wednesdays. Um, he is at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, stay safe out there and thrive. Adios.